Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On Monday, January 17th, millions of people across the United States and around the world marked the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day, which is observed on the third Monday of January each year. There was a long battle for it to become a national holiday. And today on Sojourner Truth, our Martin Luther King special, we will discuss Dr. King's legacy and also the challenges facing the nation today, from the undermining of the right to vote to the economic policy, the care economy of the Biden administration stalled in the Senate, the Build Back Better Act, to the rise of militias across the nation, including in the United States military and law enforcement. And sadly, this week, over 50 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the U.S. Senate will be determining the future of voting rights in the United States. Uh, Today, we will discuss the lead up of events that encircle this historic vote set to take place in the Senate today and the socioeconomic injustices that Dr. King fought to change that prevail to this day. Our guests are Ashley Woodard Henderson, the first black woman to serve as co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee, and Zahara Simmons, who is was active with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She is a civil rights icon. She is Professor Emerita of African American and Islamic Studies at the University of Florida. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The U.S. Senate has put off a planned recess this week and will be on Capitol Hill to take up voting rights and other legislation in the face of stark criticism from civil rights leaders. Debate begins today on two big voting rights bills that stand little chance of clearing a Republican filibuster. Conservative Democrats Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia oppose rules changes to eliminate the filibuster. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer said conversations are underway to tweak the two-thirds requirement to pass bills. Uh, They are against eliminating the filibuster. Uh, Many in our caucus are for it, but even those who are not are for changes in the rule, not for eliminating it totally. Even those who are not for eliminating it totally are for changes in the rules that allow us to pass voting rights. And we're actively discussing potential changes in the rules. No Republicans support either the voting rights bills or eliminating the filibuster, making cinema and mansion support critical in getting anything passed. President Biden has been pressuring senators to pass voting rights legislation to override voting restriction laws passed in 19 Republican-led states. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken will visit Ukraine this week and meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky as tensions between the U.S. and Russia escalate over a possible Russian invasion of its neighbor. The State Department said today that Blinken will travel to Kiev on the hastily arranged trip to show U.S. support. The trip follows stalled diplomatic talks between Moscow and the West in Europe last week that failed to resolve stark disagreements over Ukraine and other security matters. Instead, those meetings appear to have increased fears of a Russian invasion. Blinken also will travel to Berlin, where he'll meet with his German, British, and French counterparts. Tongan officials have issued the first updates on the extent of the damage in the Pacific Island nation following an undersea volcanic eruption and tsunami over the weekend, which spread ash and seawater across the country. There are at least three confirmed fatalities. Future Story News' Laura Macon Isherwood reports. In a statement, officials confirmed three people are now known to have died and that some of the smaller outlying islands have been particularly affected, with evacuations from the worst hit underway. Ash falling from the volcano is continuing to hamper aid efforts, with volunteers working to sweep the runway in order to enable planes with drinking water and other supplies to land. The government has called the situation an unprecedented disaster. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Laura Macon Isherwood. Airlines are warning telecommunication companies that the planned rollout of 5G wireless service could interfere with critical systems on planes, particularly near airports. And as Feature Story News' Ira Spitzer reports, a major 5G rollout is planned for tomorrow. The industry group Airlines for America is sounding the alarm over the planned 5G rollout in a letter to the Biden administration. The letter, signed by the CEOs of most major U.S. airlines as well as cargo companies like UPS, warns of tens of thousands of Americans being stranded overseas and commerce grinding to a halt. They're asking for 5G transmission to be disabled within a radius of about 3.2 kilometers from airport runways. One of the concerns is that the planned 5G service on the C-band network could interfere with aircraft safety systems near airports, especially in low visibility conditions. The U.S. telecom industry has disputed that claim. Ira Spitzer, San Francisco. The right-wing extremist who killed 77 people in bomb and gun massacres in Norway in 2011 appeared before a parole board today. The board is considering whether Andres Breivik is still so dangerous that Norway needs extra protection against him. The Norwegian mass killer was sentenced to 21 years in prison for the terrorist acts on the islands of Utoa and in the government quarter in Oslo. He is sent, his sentence can be extended indefinitely. Under Norwegian law, the 42-year-old Breivik is eligible to seek parole after serving the first 10 years of his term. Breivik walked into the room with white supremacist messages pinned to his clothes. He made Nazi salutes as he entered the court and presented himself as the leader of the Norwegian neo-Nazi movement, suggesting he would use the parole hearing as an opportunity to manifest his white supremacist views rather than make an earnest attempt for an early release. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And today we are doing our Martin Luther King uh, special. Um, Monday, this past Monday, uh, the 18th, January 18th, marked the national holiday in the United States. And there's a, a lot going on. You have, of course, the... GOP and those on the right 
attempting to use the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King against voting rights, against the teaching of uh, the true history of the United States in schools, against uh, the passage of the Build Back Better Act or policies that go directly to attacking poverty in the United States. It's almost like 1984 all over again. What is up is down. Of course, uh, all of our audience, you're familiar with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who became one of the most well-known leaders in the civil rights era. He was assassinated in 1968. He was born and raised in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. Uh, he was a leader of the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, a social movement against institutionalized segregation in Montgomery, Alabama's public transport system. Of course, this movement began when Rosa Parks, a black woman, was violently arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white person. Two years later, in 1957, Dr. King became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, known as SELC. As a leader of the SELC, he organized a major campaign in 1962 against segregation in Alabama, in Albany, Georgia, while he also helped to organize nonviolent protests in Birmingham, Alabama. By 1963, he put together and participated in the now historic March on Washington in which he delivered his notable I Have a Dream speech. A year later, in 1964, he won the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking and revolutionary work, and between 1965 and 1966, Dr. Dr. King helped organize the Selma to Montgomery marches, which included three protest marches held along the 54-mile highway from Selma, Alabama to the state capital of Montgomery. These historic marches demanded the right for black people in the United States to exercise their right to vote, standing up to violent racists and police. Toward the last years of his life, Dr. King began organizing against capitalist-inspired poverty and imperialist war. He was increasingly targeted and attacked by the U.S. government. In 1967, he delivered his infamous Beyond Vietnam speech in New York City, in which he spoke out against the U.S. occupation in Vietnam and called the U.S. government the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Connecting wars abroad with poverty at home, he demanded that the U.S. consider serious changes J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI at the time, targeted him as part of a coin telpro operation, spying on him and threatening him with bogus charges. At one point, Hoover even emailed Dr. King a threatening letter, anonymously of course, in, in which he hoped uh, would lead Dr. King to commit suicide. These futile attempts, however, didn't work on Dr. King, a man who was dedicated to serving the people. Just a year before his assassination in May 1967, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, quote, it is necessary for us to realize that we have moved from the era of civil rights to the era of human rights. Later that year, in December 1967, the Reverend Dr. King publicized plans to bring together impoverished people from across the United States for a new march on Washington. The march was to demand better jobs, better homes, better 
better education, and overall better lives for the poor than the first gathering of over 50 multiracial organizations came together to join the Poor People's uh, Campaign. And uh, the rest is, is history because Dr. King was assassinated April 4th, uh, 1968. Uh, to this day, the Poor People's Campaign continues. Uh, to this day, it was revitalized by uh, Bishop William Barber and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris under the banner of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Um, what I'd like to do now is to welcome our guests and then we will go to hear from uh, Dr. King himself and then have a discussion with our guests. I'd like to welcome Zahara Simmons, who is uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, activist. Uh, Zahara has been in the trenches all of her adult life, it seems, and uh, she really is a civil rights icon. I, I think she should be and be acknowledged as such. Uh, she is based in Florida, where she has continued her activism. She is Professor Emerita of African American and Islamic Studies at the University of Florida. And Zahara, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, and I'd like to welcome uh, back to Sojourner Truth, uh, Ashley Woodard Henderson, the first black woman to serve as co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, uh, Tennessee. There's a lot I could say about uh, Ashley. She also uh, has been involved certainly in helping to chronicle um, and record the SNCC activists. She is part of the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, she remains very, very active on all aspects of civil rights, human rights, anti-racism in the United States today. Ashley Henderson, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be back. Okay. What I'd like to do now, actually, is go to a clip uh, from the... Um, uh, from uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, but it's not the part that's usually played. Um, it really shows Dr. King uh, focusing on poverty and saying, we have come to collect. Let's listen to that speech and then have a discussion with both of you. But 100 years later, Still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note 
who with every American was to fall out. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. All righty, there you go. That is not exactly part of the I Have a Dream speech, as it is known, the speech Dr. King gave at the 1963 March on Washington. Uh, but let us go first. We'll, we'll start with, um, let's see, let's start with you, Zahara, because your thoughts on what MLK's legacy uh, has meant. I mean, what did it mean to you when you were in SNCC and now? And also comments on that clip you just heard in terms of Dr. King talking about the United States having given black people a blank check. We don't accept that they're insufficient funds. Um, the Bank of Justice, not bankrupt, et cetera. Let's start with you, uh, Zahara. Okay, thank you so much again for having me. And you know how happy I am to be on with my dear younger colleague, Ashley. Uh, I am so glad you played that portion of the speech uh, as opposed to, you know, the one that we constantly ad infinitum hear about the dream, you know. Uh, as a, a volunteer student, activists in 1962 in uh, Atlanta, uh, when I first heard Dr. King, he was preaching in the pulpit of the West Hunter Street Baptist Church, which I had joined uh, as a freshman there at Spelman. And I was absolutely struck by, you know, his oratorical skills, but more importantly about what he was talking about, the fierce urgency of now and calling us all to the struggle that we had to be involved in. I mean, and I was totally motivated, mesmerized, and in spite of, you know, all the efforts the Spellman did to keep us from becoming involved in the movement, and my own family uh, from uh, being involved. Uh, this man's speeches, as well as meeting the, uh, as often we would call, shock troops in SNCC, 
uh, and the SNCC National Headquarters was two and a half blocks from Spelman's campus, you know, there was just no way not, for me, that is, not to become deeply involved and to drop out of school to work full-time with SNCC. Um, and so I was, um, you know, blessed to have been in Dr. King's presence on numerous occasions to have marched with him in demonstrations there in Atlanta against the segregated uh, 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 places there that we still were fighting to open up to all people. Um, Dr. King's commitment, his dogged determination to go on, particularly in the latter part of his life when everybody, it seemed, was against him after his stance against the war in Vietnam and his uh, naming uh, the triple evils uh, that our country uh, had become and was really always uh, a part of our nation, the triple evils of racism, militarism, uh, and um, uh, I always forget the third part. Racism, militarism, um, I don't know if either of you can help me pull up that third one. Um, Capitalism. Just carry on, yep. And racism. And, uh, of course, he was a marked man and certainly was assassinated for his militant stances. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, in SNCC, we often would have contentious meetings with him uh, over strategies, uh, particularly in the early part uh, of SNCC's interactions with Dr. King. But over the years, as I have studied him, I have taught him, I can see how uh, radical and revolutionary he was. And, of course, toward the latter part of his life, he was about uh, world revolution. Uh, And he was calling out the U.S.'s uh, reactionary role, not only in our own country, but around the world. And I feel so honored to have been a part of his nonviolent army uh, that he led and to be able to still remember him and talk about him to my younger uh, colleagues who are carrying the banner forward that King had. Thank you. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Zohara. And actually, just to tell you a bit more about uh, Zohara, Zohara, she was a SNCC staff person during the 1964 Freedom Summer Project um, and worked there getting black people in Mississippi the right to vote. She was one of three women project directors in the state. I can imagine that was extremely dangerous time, Mississippi, in that period working for voting rights. She was based in Laurel, Mississippi, where the head of the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan was based. Oh my goodness. And uh, Ashley uh, 
Woodard Henderson, your thoughts now on the King's legacy, uh, but also given the previous clip about King's focus on ending poverty in the United States. I mean, there's so many efforts to whitewash King. There's so many efforts now from Youngkin, um, you know, in uh, Virginia, uh, trying to turn King's words against uh, black and brown people. Ashley Woodard Henderson, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so uh, incredible about reclaiming the radical King is not only just rooted in, in the, the fact, like my, my dear comrade Zahara said, um, the, the fact of his politics, his politics is an, is an internationalist. Um, you know, there's a great debate about whether or not King was a Pan-Africanist. I would argue uh, that his many, 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 many speeches after traveling to the continent, traveling to London and meeting with, with Black people there um, and making the connections between how capitalism was impacting Black people in the U.S. South and the United States as a whole, uh, how militarism was impacting our people, how uh, white supremacist violence, state sanction was impacting our people, uh, would argue that he practiced pan-Africanism, whether he ever called himself that or not. Um, but I think the thing that makes me the most excited about the radical king is that he was a human who was surrounded by other humans who were pushing him to develop politically. I can only imagine now that having done it, what it would have been like to be in my 30s during the 1960s trying to mobilize a global nonviolent movement for human rights before the Internet and cell phones while people were trying to kill me from the inside and outside of my movement. Um, I have a lot of, of grace and humility in the face of a person like Dr. King. You know, we, we heard Sister Zahara talk about uh, the Beyond Vietnam speech where he talked about uh, you know, racism, poverty, and militarism, and, you know, as I would say, militarism, capitalism, and white supremacy. Um, and and what's so powerful about that speech isn't just his delivery of it and the incredible politics that was incorporated into it, but also the, the, the sometimes not very well-known fact that Vincent Harding, Dr. Vincent Harding, the, one of the founders of the National Council of Elders, actually wrote that speech, right? Uh, we think about the I Have a Dream speech and even this mo more radical component that you shared today, Sister Margaret. But what, what I think about uh, is his speech, you know, the, the, the birth of a new nation, where he, he talks to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church about his recent trip to Ghana. He teaches them about uh, Kwame Nkrumah, and he talks uh, very specifically about the need for us to be in relationship with our comrades across the sea. Um, he talks about very specifically the lessons that we have to learn from our international comrades. I think about his speech, uh, when, when peace becomes obnoxious, the front line yesterday uh, actually did a, a rereading of that piece, um, where he literally is talking about the importance of nonviolence, the importance um, of, of, of peace, but that peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, right? It's the presence of some positive force. It's not just the absence of war and tensions and confusion, but it's the presence of justice and goodwill and the power of the kingdom of God. And he quite frankly says that if peace, to the point about, uh, you know, our Republican colleagues, our right-wing colleagues that are turning his words into weapons against uh, uh, the very movements that King helped birth, he says in response to them, I think pretty clearly in this speech, that if peace means uh, accepting second-class citizenship, that he didn't want it. That if peace meant keeping his mouth shut in the midst of in injustice and evil, that he didn't want it. That if peace meant being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo that people like Joe Manchin and others are promoting, he didn't want peace. 
He said that, that if peace meant being exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, that he didn't want peace. And that, in fact, we should revolt against that kind of peace. And so what we need is not a neoliberal Democratic Party uh, that is not willing to push and fight for the abolishment of the filibuster, uh, to move to, to see uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act and the Build Back Better Act uh, and the People's Response Act passed. Um, what we what we need is for them to actually not prioritize bipartisanship for the sake of peace over actually seeing the material conditions of black people and all people change in this country. It's, it's time. And people literally put their lives on the lines to give them the opportunity to do so. Right. Well said, uh, both of you. And again, to let our audience know a bit about Ashley, she uh, considers herself Afrolatian, which is a black Appalachian uh, woman from the working class, born and raised in Southeast Tennessee. She is the first black woman to serve as co-executive director of the Highlander Institute and Education Center in Newmarket, uh, Tennessee, as I said earlier. But she's also a member of multiple leadership teams in the movement for black lives. Ashley has thrown down on the vision for black lives and the Breathe Act. She has served on the governance Council of the Southern Movement Assembly, the advisory committee of the National Bailout Collective, and is an active leader of the front line. She's a longtime activist who's done work in movements fighting for workers, for reproductive justice, for LBQIA plus folks, for environmental justice, and so much more. Um, Ashley and, and Zohari are going to stay with us. I'm trying to uh, play as much as King as possible during this hour. We're now going to to go to a very, very poignant uh, King here uh, from the Mo Mountaintop speech. It's a short clip. Dr. King was ill at the time, I understand, when he made that speech. Of course, this was the day before he was assassinated. Let us go to that clip now. We've got some difficult days ahead. Some began to talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
Alrighty, so this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and this is our Martin Luther King uh, special. And our guests, we have a, a intergenerational uh, team here, panelists this morning, Zahara uh, Simmons, who is a civil rights icon activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC, and Ashley uh, Henderson, who is with the Highlander Institute, the Movement for Black Lives, and so much more. We're going to take a short stay break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And I'm in the now. And it don't take no x-ray to see right through my smile I know I'll be on the go And it ain't no drink out there that can numb my soul Oh no All we want to do is take the chains off All we want to do is break the chains off All we want to do is be free All we want to do is be free all we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my niggas die. Part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that. Just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe to a free podcast. If you're a member of Facebook still, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. Uh, we are also check out our website at So True Radio.org, and we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Tennessee, Tennessee. And uh, internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Spain. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And for our King Day special, um, our guests are uh, SNCC, um, activist and civil rights icon Zohara Simmons as well as Ashley Henderson uh, uh, young activist um, uh, who is with the Movement for Black Lives, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center. Uh, now um, for both of you you know, Dr. King was killed before his a call for the Poor People's Campaign came to fruition, the first Poor People's Campaign uh, that took place in 1968. Um, what I'd like to do is to play a clip now of people testifying on the pre from the present day uh, Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, a recent event uh, that took place. And then a bit of a story that Bishop William Barber, who is one of the uh, co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, reminds us about Dr. King. Let's go to that clip now. The compelling power that we, poor and low-income people, have to reconstruct society from the bottom up. 
and we need to do it with the loudest voices possible, the biggest actions possible. Because we know that there is no scarcity in this land. The only scarcity is the moral will to do what's right. Hold on, just a little while longer. We are those with sub-minimum wage jobs who can't afford sky-high rent. People with disabilities are the fastest growing minority group. It's crazy to me that in 2021, it's still legal for workplaces to pay a sub-minimum wage to people with disabilities. There are still so much trial and tribulations that we go through as indigenous people. We can't get a decent wage to sustain ourselves, nor can we get adequate housing. Veterans across this nation say enough is enough. We can't pat essential workers on the back on one day and then cut their health care the next day. Health is a political choice. What more do I need to do to prove that my voice is just as valuable as anyone else's? There are still forces in denial that would try to slow walk our transition to a clean economy and a just future for us all. We have an immoral system run by moral people. But together we walk and we walk and we fight. It's time for a change. Reconstruyamos esta gran nación. See, we are people of resilience as we fight these interlocking injustices together. When we work together, mobilize together, and rise together, we become a voice for the voiceless, and we become an agent of change in a time where great change is needed. We need the third reconstruction to ensure that deaf people, people with disabilities, and all people can have the right to live and to thrive. We know what they are doing, but the question is, what are we going to do? Reconstruction begins when we change our mentality and say it's time for you to get your foot off of my neck. Get your foot off of my neck, uh, Ashley uh, Henderson. We're going to talk with you there because we hear a lot of what's wrong and everything coming down to us. We don't hear as much about how the movement is responding. But one note, a part of the clip I didn't get to play, is Reverend Barber reminded us that it was welfare mothers who actually proposed the Poor People's Campaign to uh, Dr. King, a rather contentious meeting that they had with Dr. King, and then the National Welfare Rights Organization played a critical role in organizing uh, the first uh, Poor People's Campaign. And of course, today, uh, mothers on, on welfare, those on benefits are, are very much aligned, uh, maligned, it seemed, by both sides of the aisle. And we're really in trouble when it comes to attacking poverty in the United States, even the child tax credit um, that lifted millions of children. Uh, out of deep poverty or out of poverty is now stalled in the Senate. Uh, Senator Manchin's and and us uh, of West Virginia, Senator Cinema of um, you know 
both really um, stalling not only that, but also the voting rights at cinema, of course, from Arizona. Ashley, let us uh, start with you on your thoughts on, on how the movement is pushing back, but uh, also what is happening now in the in Congress when it comes to uh, fighting poverty as well as uh, maintaining or reestablishing or establishing the right to vote? Because it's always been a, a fight, hasn't it, Ashley? It's always been a fight. Um, I think what's, what's real to me and uh, building on what the good bishop offered around getting the boot off of our people's necks um, is that, you know, Frederick Douglass said power concedes nothing without a demand. Charlene Carruthers then uh, paraphrased it and said power concedes nothing without an organized demand. And I would offer in a 21st century context with a neoliberal establishment with fascist and right-wing authoritarian white supremacists beating down the door of democracy, uh, that, that what is real is power will concede nothing without an organized demand and a consequence, right? What we found is that we've been able to mobilize and organize to develop and write policies um, and, and clearly articulated demands of the state in regards to changing the material conditions of our people, whether that was around police brutality, which we've talked about on the show a lot, um, whether it was talking about voting rights, whether it was talking about lowering the cost for working families to survive in this country, uh, what it looks like to create good paying jobs and build an economy that prioritizes our people and not just, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations and wealthy individuals. Um, and what we now need to do is, is hold them accountable to what King said uh, in the speech that you played before around paying out what they owe us, right? What is the consequence? Right. We've mobilized to actually have people exercise their right to vote, to use civil disobedience to fight back against unjust systems that demand justice and liberation in our lifetime. Now what we need to do is hold the currently elected officials accountable to actually giving us the things that we demanded when we took it to the streets and to the voting ballots. Um, now is the time for us to push for the Senate to actually pass this, this, these bills around voting rights, right? That we need to make sure that they're not taking away from us the very thing that got them in, in position in the first place. We need to push for the passage of the Build Back Better plan. It's brilliant, right? It's not actually going to harm any working family. It's going to make it possible for us to have accessible health care, child care, education, housing, other vital services, because they'll be more affordable, right? It'll make sure that, that our young people get free preschool education, which is a huge expense for young families, right? It'll make sure that we get paid leave from work if we get sick in a time of a global pandemic and an endemic in the U.S., right? It'll make sure that we can be at home to take care of our loved ones if they get sick. Um, and then it'll also extend the child tax credit, which you mentioned. So we, there's plenty of legislation, whether it's the Build Back Better plan, the John Lewis Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, thinking about the incredible bill pulled from the Breathe Act, the People's Response Act, uh, that Cori Bush has got, right? Like there's so many incredible pieces of legislation that are historic and could usher in this third reconstruction. But now it is up to us to make sure that these elected officials know that there will absolutely be a consequence if they don't pass what we're asking for. Um, and, and we, so again, I don't think that the, the state of the movement is that we're non-existent. I think the gospel, the good news is that we're alive and well, and we are still using multi-tactical, multi-strategic uh, you know, uh, interventions across sector uh, to demand these things and, and force their way through uh, what, is, what is often a very hostile environment in Congress. Right. Thank you for that. And uh, Zahara, you know, you were down in Mississippi 
putting your life on the line uh, along with other uh, Snickers, the SNCC, um, a lot of students really uh, consider the shock troops of the civil rights movement. Um, when you see the images of the police beating people's heads in and, and being attacked by dogs. And as um, you know, the, the level of threat and violence and terrorism that you all uh, faced at the time, I'm sure you did down in Laurel, Mississippi. And now you see what is happening, and, and this was for the right to vote, what is happening with voting rights uh, right now? And, you know, you have um, Republican after Republican getting up and saying, well, they're for the right to vote, but they just cannot uh, support the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights uh, Act. Not even that, uh, not to mention the other piece of, of legislation uh, that went even uh, further than that. So, Zahara Simmons, the other worrying sign is that Joe Biden, his poll numbers, if one is to believe the Quinniac uh, recent poll, is even lower than Donald Trump's. And a lot of worry about the what's going to happen with the midterm elections, what's going to happen in 2024, and a lot of talk about a real civil war in the United States, uh, given the divisions uh, that are happening right now, and a move to, uh, all, uh, you know, autocracy and fascism in the United States. Your your thoughts on that, and uh, are you seeing any hopeful signs, Zahara? Well, that's that's a that's quite a lot, and I agree with uh, all of those things you've laid out. I certainly agree with what uh, Ashley has said. Uh, these, you know, how Dr. King said, these, there are difficult days ahead, and that's putting it mildly. And I think, you know, it's very clear to me that the Republicans are refusing to pass this legislation, particularly the voting rights legislation, because they are well aware that this is the only way uh, for them to uh, have control of both houses uh, of Congress. Uh, and they, even though they know that it is wrong, it is totally anti-democratic because their numbers uh, will not get them there if, in fact, uh, we have a free and fair elections. So they are going for uh, denying the right to vote, particularly to black and brown people, so that they will gain control of the Congress and the Senate in 2022. It's straight up. Uh, a power grab, and they don't care how undemocratic it is. And the only solution that I see is what uh, you were saying, Ashley, and that is it's got to be taken to the streets. Uh, you know, the reason that we made the progress we did after George Floyd's uh, lynching by the police uh, was because of the thousands of people who took it to the streets. This is the only thing that I see us having uh, as the way to force these people to vote the right way. And clearly, we need as much pressure on cinema and mansion as possible 
Uh, and I'm happy that people have been going to Arizona, have been going to West Virginia uh, uh, to force them, if at all possible, to uh, give the votes uh, in the Senate that will pass this legislation. Uh, I just wanted to go back to uh, something about what King was talking about. Uh, I want to remind us that our defense budget is seven hundred billion dollars, seven hundred five billion dollars. Uh, this is money uh, that is going into useless war preparation. Uh, and uh, the continuation of the U.S. being an empire and forcing people around the world to bend to its wishes. Uh, so, you know, nothing has really changed when you really get down to it. And many of the successes of the civil rights movement have been, for the last two decades, being slowly moved back, and now it's very overt. This is, uh, again, a white supremacist, uh, neo-colonialist agenda, both at home and abroad. And nothing can change this or stop it, but we the people uniting uh, and having multiple strategies, which include getting our people registered to vote and getting them out to the polls in 2022 and having our feet in the street uh, in Washington, in Arizona, in West Virginia, and everywhere else. Right. Thank you for that, both of you. Now, on that note, I'd like to play uh, another clip of uh, Dr. King, one that you're not, those who are trying to sanitize Dr. King, they're not likely to play this one. Let's go to hear from Dr. King now. Diabetes didn't go to hell because he was rich. His wealth was his opportunity to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. Diabetes went to hell because he passed by Lazarus every day, but he never really saw him. Diabetes went to hell because he allowed Lazarus to become invisible. Diabetes went to hell because he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the ends for which he lived. Diabetes went to hell because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. Diabetes finally went to hell because he sought to be a conscientious objector in the war against poverty. And I come by here to say that America too is going to hell if she doesn't use her wealth. America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basis, basic necessities of life. She too will go to hell. And I will hear 
America through our historians. Years and generations to come saying, we built gigantic buildings to kiss the sky. We built gargantuan bridges to span the seas. Through our spaceships, we were able to carve highways through the stratosphere. Through our airplanes, we were able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. Through our submarines, we were able to penetrate oceanic depths. It seems that I can hear the God of the universe saying, even though you've done all of that, I was hungry and you fed me now. And you close me not. The children of my sons and daughters were in need of economic security, and you didn't provide it for them. So you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness. This may well be the indictment on America. And that same voice says in Memphis to the mayor, to the power structure, if you do it unto the least of these, my children, you do it unto me. Wow. That what a powerful clip. Um, we are coming up to the top of the hour. Ashley Henderson, that's not something that the sanitizers of King want to hear. And uh, we just have a few minutes left. So if each of you could just take uh, just a minute or so to give us some uh, final thoughts. Ashley, we'll start with you. Yeah, it certainly isn't, uh, I think, either what the GOP or, quite frankly, the, the, the immobilized uh, Democratic Party wants us to hear. And I think that what we need to be doing is following the leadership of folks like Ense Ufa from the New Georgia Project, following the leadership of folks like Natasha Brown and Cliff Albright from Black Voters Matter, following the leadership of folks like Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight, following the leadership of folks uh, like Maurice Mitchell and the Working Families Party to actually demand uh, what we deserve, right? Cabral often said that that we're not fighting for ideas in people's heads, right? We're fighting for the actual material conditions of our people to change, for these benefits to live better and in peace to see our lives go forward and to guarantee the future of our children. We need to, to abolish this filibuster, at least get rid of it in relationship to getting voting rights through the door uh, with the John Lewis Act and with, uh, and with the Freedom to Vote Act. We need to pass Build Back Better, um, and we need to see the material conditions that our people demanded in 2020 come to fruition uh, in 2022. So I'm looking forward to being in the streets with y'all to make that happen. Right, thank you. And uh, Zohara, uh, Ashley just uh, mentioned uh, Capral, and uh, we have to remember Franz Fanon talking about we have to wake up uh, Sleeping Beauty and, and basically even create a new human being. A quick final thought from you, uh, Zohara Simmons. Uh, yes, and as we've heard, Dr. King made the connections between poverty and militarism 
And that's something that many of our leaders, even our black elected officials, fear to talk about today. Uh, I think that organized resistance is going to be the only way that we can get the Democratic Party to do what it needs to do. Uh, and hopefully we can get other people to see that it is in their interest to join with us uh, in forcing some of these Republicans to also vote for the John uh, Lewis bill and the Bill Back Better uh, bill and others. But we have to be organized. We have to be systemic in our struggle. Uh, we are in very, very serious times, and only organized resistance can assure us of success. And I, I couldn't agree more. I'm afraid we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. But, you know, Ashley uh, Woodard Henderson, uh, Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons, I am so honored to have both of you on the show. You both are embodiments of we are our sister and brother's keeper. You are both on the path uh, set out for us by our ancestors. You are doing the work. We very much appreciate you. Thank you both. Alrighty, um, we are out of time today. Show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Uh, our engineer today is uh, Gary Baca. I'd like to thank Jose Benefitas for his help of today's show. And today we would like to welcome the new assistant producer for Sojourner Truth, Alicia Vargas. Alicia, we are delighted that you are on board with us. We are so happy that you are now part of our team. Uh, if you'd like. A copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Uh, please stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.